You're listening to the sermon series, The Songs of Jesus, at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we'll see the power of singing the stories of Jesus. We'll see how these songs are rooted in the promises of God, speak to our deepest longings, and equip us to bring all we are to Him. So yeah, let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word. So we're in the middle of kind of a a series that we do, try to do each year just during the Advent season. Uh, We've entitled this series, The Songs of Jesus, and where we're uh, kind of looking at some old carols as well as just some themes that are in Advent. So the first week we talked about longing, which is a a huge theme in Advent season. Uh, Last week we talked about waiting. And so both of those are kind of the the minor keys of Advent, you know, the mole. So today we're, we're talking about rejoicing. And so uh, just to give you a heads up, because I just did this in the nine, I, this may come across a little heavier than I intended. So I walked away from the nine going, wow, that was a, that was a little heavier than I thought it was going to come across because it is about rejoicing. But for us to really rejoice, we've got to kind of feel the weight. And if we don't feel the weight and we don't feel the heaviness, then we have nothing to rejoice in and it, it becomes a little shallow. And so I don't intend for it to be weighty, but I do intend for us to walk out of here rejoicing uh, in this Advent season. And I want to give us kind of reasons why uh, from this passage. So let's read Luke 2. I'm just going to read 8 through 14. This is kind of where we're going to marinate today. And, and I realize, man, this is a familiar passage. So if you were with us for caroling on Wednesday, we watched the Christmas, Charlie Brown Christmas, and they, they read this story. And, uh, and I'm sure you've heard it several times in your lifetime, but every time we come to the Word of God, I'm always asking God to show us new things and refresh us with old truths and that we'll never get uh, familiar with these same things that we hear over and over, but God would just kind of continue to breathe new life in us. Um, So yeah, hear the Word of the Lord. So in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And then suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. So just as I've said, Lord, just open our eyes this morning. Help us to see um, new things in a familiar passage of Scripture. And Lord, help our hearts to rejoice in what you have done in this Christmas season, God, that we celebrate every year. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So 1865 was a, a really difficult year um, in our nation's history. A couple reasons for that. It's two years after the, the Emancipation Proclamation, a couple years after Civil War that had ravaged our country. 
And during this time, um, there was a, a, a three guys that were in Nashville, Tennessee, that approached this, this guy named, he's a union general, his name was Clinton B. Fisk. And they got together to discuss a couple of problems, and here are the two problems. One was this, what do we do with this empty uh, union barracks that's in Nashville, which is still there uh, to this day at Union Station there in Nashville. So that's one question, that problem they had to deal with. And the second one is this, is how do we... Um, educate and empower men and women who basically traded their physical chains slavery for social and economic chains and so as these three men uh, talk with general fix they finally convinced him to provide the barracks to be a new school and that new school was going to be named fisk university so the first students of this new school ranged from seven years old to 70 years old and the common experience that all these people had uh, was slavery and incredible poverty but they also had a hunger um, for knowledge and a longing to change and so here's a I don't know how well this is captured on the screen but here's a photo kind of the of the early days of this school probably see a little bit better on the side TVs and so this opened officially in August 22nd, uh, 1867. And so you can imagine uh, this was a, uh, a really, really difficult school to fund in this day. I mean, you can just kind of let your imagination go there and see. There wasn't very many donors that lined up to support this school. There wasn't very many Tennesseans who were sending their children to this school. Uh, enrollment was uh, entirely former enslaved men and women. And obviously this school fell on really, really difficult times because they couldn't fund it and so the school's treasurer at this time his name was George White came up with an idea to kind of help with this problem of funding uh, he went to the the school's choir and basically said this, the songs that you guys are singing the entire country needs to hear these songs and so you know we need to go on tour and let the country hear these songs and the problem with that is this is that as one choir member described these songs, and I put the quote on the, on, the, on the screen here, these songs were associated that they were singing with slavery and their um, difficult, dark past. So these songs were sung in the fields and the road, uh, roadsides. They were songs of hope that were birthed out of uh, deep suffering and pain. And so, um, so you can imagine, like here you got a, a group of enslaved people that are being told by a white man to go sing these songs that were birthed from slavery to a predominantly white audience and then charge them for it. Because <laughs> that's how they're going to fund their university. And it worked. To this day, uh, this university is, is thriving and growing. And in this time, this started what they called um, the Fisk University Jubilee Singers. And, and here's a, a picture of them. So out of this group, uh, they started touring in 1871. Uh, the songs that they sang became known as, you know, African-American spirituals. We just kind of sang one uh, that's known in this genre just a few minutes ago with the, with the kids' choir. Um, and there's a song uh, that everyone in this room knows really well um, that the Jubilee singers went across the country singing. And that is, go tell it on the mountain. That's how we have that song. It's from uh, this group of people. 
So I don't know about you, man. I, when I read about this and did a little work on this, I, I had no idea. I, I did not know that this birth, uh, this song was birthed out of, out of this group here as well as um, some of the pain and the suffering and the difficulty, obvi- obviously, of being a slave. And so it has a way of um, bringing new light to a song that we've sang year in and year out, and we're going to sing it here in a few minutes uh, as our kind of closing song. But in this song, and I think you guys feel this too, when you, when you sing Go Tell It on the Mountain, it, it, it makes you smile, doesn't it? Like it's hard to sing Go Tell It on the Mountain with a frown on your face. And that doesn't make you smile. It just, yeah, you kind of want to clap. You want to dance a little, do a little jig. I, I'm not going to, but maybe you guys will hear in a few minutes uh, when we sing this again. And so it is a... Um, it is a song, even though it's written out of suffering and pain, there's a joy and a rejoicing in it because there's a, there's a hope that they, that they saw. It was, it was a real hope to them. And I, and I find it interesting that they use Luke chapter 2 as kind of the, uh, where this song came from because it's basically the shepherd's story uh, that they are they're singing about. And so here's, here's what, I, what I asked the Lord to help me with. So, because uh, it, it, like Luke 2 is familiar for me too. My gosh, I've been in pastoral ministry for almost 30 years. I've probably preached sermons out of Luke 2, I don't know, half a dozen or a dozen times. And at first, I was wanting to kind of go to Isaiah. I was kind of wanting to kind of go to Isaiah 40 and, and do something new and fresh in Isaiah 40 that kind of brings in rejoicing. But I knew that I would eventually get to the shepherd story because that's what the song is about. And I'm like, why don't I just go back to the shepherd's story? That's where I'm going to eventually be. And so that's what I did. And I said, God, just help me to see. Help me see in this story what it is that we're to rejoice in. So this song brings joy, right? Even though it's birthed out of a lot of pain and suffering, there's a, there's a joyful ring to it. So what in the story of the shepherds that we are to rejoice in? What is it that we see here? And then the second question I want to answer, I asked myself as we're working, as I was working through this this week, then how does that joy become like in me? I don't want it just out there. Like, how does it get in me? And so those are two questions I I want to answer. So let's dive in. So what, what do we rejoice in? Here's the answer and then I'll, I'll unpack it for us. We rejoice in the message of Christmas well, then, Lyle, what is the message of Christmas? Well, here's the message of Christmas. A Savior has been born for you. And I'm emphasizing for. So what do we rejoice in? And I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but when I share the answer, you look very stoic. There's not a lot of like, oh, yes, right? So, but that's just kind of how it lands with us. It's like, oh, I've heard this a million times. Let's move on. No, we're not moving on. What we rejoice in is the message of Christmas, and the message of Christmas is this. A Savior's been born for you, for you. I mean, look what happens here, starting in verse 10. So the angel comes, shines around them. They're terrified, which is always the response when an angel shows up on the scene in the Bible. And it goes on and says, but the angel said to them, look, don't be afraid for look. What is he? I proclaim to you. I'm a, I'm a herald. I'm announcing to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So what is the good news 
of a great joy, the good news of a great joy that's for all the people. Well, the angel says, today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So what is the good news of a great joy? The good news of a great joy that we are to rejoice in is this announcement that Jesus was born to save you, which is really offensive. I mean, it may not be very offensive to us because we're all church people and we're all nice and tidy and we all know the right answers. But like if we just for a second, we can peel that layer back and be honest. Whenever we hear that, it's offensive. Why is it offensive? Because for you to really receive someone to come and save you, you got to realize you are in a big mess, right? You got to realize there's something deeply wrong with you. I, I've shared this story before, but a few years ago, uh, my, my high school, uh, at that time, my oldest was in high school and he had some friends over and they did a little bonfire in the backyard. And I didn't realize there was like, a, you know, those little times of season where you're not supposed to be burning things. It's like, well, okay, what in the world? It's so stupid. But I understand why I don't want to cause a huge forest fire. But one of my neighbors, I don't know who it is. I've been praying for curses to come on my neighbor, whoever that was. I don't know who it was, but they, they phoned in. Oh, there's a fire in the backyard of the Drury Homes. Like, why in the world did you do that? Like, you have something better to do than look for smoke. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and it, was, it wasn't a big, it was like a little bitty thing. I mean, it's like, that's my son. He built a fire. It's like, like this. It's really little. It's like not a big deal. So it's 10 o'clock at night. And soon, I mean, like, I got lights shining in my front yard just like what in the world is going on here some somebody's house burning down and sure enough here they come in my front yard and said hey uh mr drury oh yeah we heard that you got a fire going on in your backyard it's like all right thanks for rolling in here but i don't know if i need your help i can just get a water hose right and just you know it's like it's such a little bitty thing you know so so i don't, I don't i'm not very joyful that the fire department showed up in my house because why there's a little bitty well fall here fire into my backyard but if my house was on fire <laughs> right i would be really happy to see them amen right why because i i see there's something deeply wrong so yeah the message is offensive and as long as we whether we do this intentionally or unintentionally and i think sometimes we do it unintentionally we have a tendency to kind of push this message to the margins, this idea that Jesus has come to save you. Like that's the thing we rejoice in. And we have a tendency to kind of push this to the margins. And if we continue to do that, it just, I don't know. Christmas feels very weightless and trite. So I, I went to a concert a few years ago. A guy that's not a Christian, it was a Christmas concert. And I, it was good. It was fine. It wasn't anything bad about it. It was very entertaining. But I just remember leaving there feeling very empty. And I think one of the reasons why is because this message, a Savior has been born for you, was marginalized. A New York Times ran an ad a few years ago that said this, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. I mean, there's some, some truth in this, but whose love? 
Who's the standard of love that we're measuring up to? Like, who's defining love for us? It's very ambiguous. It's very, there's no content to it. There's nothing you can touch and feel here. It just feels really nice. Oh, okay, great, super. It's like reading a Hallmark card. Yeah, that's nice. Thank you very much. But there's no weight to it because we don't even know what love we're talking about. Tim Keller, in his book, Hidden Christmas, responding to this quote, says this. Christmas, however, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance. But it supports no illusions that we can defeat them ourselves. The message of Christianity is instead... Things really are this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. There is a light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, He is the light. That's why at the beginning of Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, when she begins to sing out for what God has done for her, this is her very first words when she says, and Mary said, Luke 1, 46 through 47, my soul praises the greatness of the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So that's, that's what we rejoice in. The message of Christmas is that Jesus has come to save you. That's what brings joy. That's why we celebrate. That's why it feels so festive here because of that. And if, if we continue to push this to the margin, or if you personally push it to the margin, Christmas will just, uh, just feel very sentimental. So what is Jesus saving us from? Well, we know this specifically when the angel came to Joseph and said, hey, don't go and divorce Mary. Go and continue to marry. Go and marry Mary. <laughs> That's funny. Marry Mary. Um, thank you for a few laughter there. And you're going to have a son, and the son's name's not going to be Joseph Jr., right? It doesn't that, right? It's not going to be your favorite name or whatever. You're going to name him Jesus. And why are you going to name him Jesus? Because he will save the people from their, say it out loud, you know this. So the message of Christmas that we rejoice in is that a Savior's been born for you to save you from your sins. And I know sin is not something we enjoy talking about, except in these four walls where we kind of tolerate it. But the reality is this, is when you walk outside of these four walls, it's the very thing you deal with all the time. Your sin and the sin of others. It is in your face all the time. And as David Brooks says in his little book called Road to Character, sin, and this, he's not a Christian. This is a guy that's not a Christian. He may be now. I don't, there's been kind of a journey in his life. But when he wrote this book, David Brooks was not a follower of Jesus Christ. But he said this, sin has got to be the prominent mental furniture in your life. You've got to understand this or you will never understand humanity. 
It has to be kind of the lens by which you define and understand yourself. And I would argue it has to be the lens by which you have to understand how you rejoice that there is a Savior that's been born for you. If you don't have a sin problem or sin's never a part of your mental furniture, then hearing that you got a Savior falls on deaf ears. And it's like, oh, let's move on. Let's sing away in the manger. <laughs> I love how David Brooks talks about sin in that book called Road to Character. He says this, I'm always looking for ways of thinking about my own sin and kind of bringing the, the weightiness of this in my own life. But he says this, sin is not just some demonic thing. It, it is that, but it's not just that. Sometimes we can use demons as an excuse for our sin. So instead of owning our sin, well, the devil made me do it. What the what the heck is that, right? Okay, I, I hear you. That's a way to kind of like escape responsibility for your own actions. The devil didn't make you do anything. You did it because you wanted to. And the devil used your wants to entice you to sin. It's your fault, my fault, not the devil's fault. Sin is not some demonic thing, but he goes on and says, it's just our perverse tendency to screw things up. And usually it's good things that we screw up, amen? To favor the short term over the long term, the lower over the higher, and sin when it is committed over and over again hardens into loyalty to a lower love. Did you hear that? Sin when it's committed over and over again hardens into a loyalty to a lower love. And some of you in this room have no idea that you're loving a lower love. And Jesus, out of his own initiative, right, came into this world to save you from loving lower loves and to give you a heart and the capacity to love what we're supposed to love, and that is him. Like, I, I know we hear this all the time, but I just want to re, re, repeat what all of us hear. Guys, look, we are created in the image of God, every single one of us. That's why we're, why every human being is worth dignity and value and love and respect, no matter what their color is and no matter what their socioeconomic is. It doesn't matter. You're, everyone is created in the image of God. That's the foundation thing that we need to stand upon. And because you're created in the image of God, fundamentally, this, means, this is what it means to be a human being. You are to be in a dependent loving relationship with God the Father. You are to be in a dependent communion with God the Father. That's what you're created to do. That's what it means in part, not in full, but in part, to be an image bearer of Him. And sin is what keeps you from that. And so as long as you allow sin to kind of keep you from being a human being, you're going to be a half human. I know it sounds really weird, right? But it is to be fully human as God is creating you to be you have to do something with your sin problem that you can do nothing about other than receive the one who has come to deal with your sin problem and his name is Jesus Christ that's it and when you receive him your sins are forgiven and you're able to live in to what you're created to be 
And that is to be in dependent communion with God the Father. So what do we rejoice in, Lyle? Well, we rejoice in the message of Christmas. And what is the message of Christmas? Jesus, a Savior, has been born for you. For you. I remember early on when we were, Kathy and I were dating, um, and I may have shared this story with you guys years ago. I always forget what I share. So if I forget, I know you've forgotten. Amen? So... Uh, so this is a repeat, just kind of uh, humor me by going, oh, that's, that's awesome, Lyle, or just laugh at the appropriate time. So, um, so yeah, we, we were dating at this time. I was working in Ohio at a small church. Kathy was uh, finishing up school, and it was right, right at the beginning of summer, and we were going down to kind of visit my parents for a few days. And so um, when we were driving, um, we got right, right before Cincinnati, and I realized, man, I don't have a lot of fuel. I noticed my imp- it was getting close to empty, and I didn't have a car that said, hey, you got 20 miles till E. And it's like, this was in the 80s, amen, or maybe it was early 90s, and this car was, in the, was built in the 80s, so didn't have any of that luxury like we do today, which have been really nice to have. So um, those are minor points. Moving on, right? <laughs> um, so as we get into Cincinnati, I said, hey, man, I got to find an exit to go get some gas. But what, as soon as we got in there, man, the clouds opened up, or the heavens opened up, and it meant a torrential downpour. I, mean, I don't know if you've been in those little summer storms. Sometimes they just pop up out of the blue, and this one's one of those. And I mean, it was just like, like crazy, uh, where you slow down, you turn your hazards on, and you're trying to see the line so you don't wreck. And so because of that, guess what I forgot about? Getting gas. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, so, so we get through Cincinnati. We get across the bridge. The rain stops. And this was a time, I don't know if you guys remember this, when uh, they were doing a lot of work on 71 at that, at that time, a little interchange. I mean, it was just crazy. They were trying to widen it and barricades, and there wasn't much of an of a emergency lane. It was, just a, it was just a mess in that. You guys remember what I'm talking about? It felt like it took forever for that to get fixed. Um, but I remember getting across the bridge, and I remember my mind going, oh, my gosh, i got to get gas. And so I said, well, we're, we're still moving, so that's good. We'll just get to the next exit, which was about, I don't know, a mile, mile, mile and a half up. And so we're, we're kind of in the, the far lane, and I'm, we're going up a little bit of an incline. And we get about halfway up that incline, and then the motor stops. And so here we are, by God's grace, drifting over trying to get to some kind of makeshift emergency lane, which there wasn't one where I was because it was just, I mean, like literally at the lines right here and here's the barricades. Or, so our, our car is like half in the interstate and half over. I mean, it, it was just horrible. And so we're sitting there. This might have been one of the first intense moments of our relationship to kind of figure out how we're going to deal with like these kind of things. And it didn't go really well. Um, yeah, just didn't. I mean, Oh, well, we're still together, obviously, so we got married, uh, which is a good thing. And so I'm looking out there because we're just sitting in the car. She's going, we got to get out of the car. Well, I don't know what to do. We're just going to sit here for right now. No, we got to get out of the car. I don't know what to do. We're just going to sit here right now. That's back and forth, back and forth. And I noticed there's like a little area where we can kind of, if we get the car moved about 50 feet, we're kind of like there's a little bit more of a wider area. We can get the car off the road so these people are not coming up behind us yelling and screaming and honking the horn. And we were fearful for, I'm literally, I'm not exaggerating. We were really fearful for our lives. So I thought, okay, I'm going to get out there. We're going to do this, all right? So, uh, you know, I guess at that time I was in my 20s, I was an impressive with my strength, you know, which 
obviously is a no-brainer. And now I would know never to do this. So I get behind the car. I think I can push it 50 feet. It's not too hard. Car's not that heavy. So I said, hey, when I give you a thumbs up, put in a neutral, we're going, all right? And this is right before, right after it rained. I mean, you guys can probably figure out what's going to happen here. So, so she lets off the brake, puts it in neutral. And sure enough, man, I start to try to push and I went down because I had no footing. I went down just like that immediately. And luckily she's looking because she would have ran over me, right? See, like as soon as she saw me go out, she pushed on the brakes and then we laughed for a second and then we got up and said, like, what are we going to do? And, and, um, and so we just said, all right, I don't, I don't know what we're going to do. We can't sit, stand here because we're going to get killed. So we just start walking and literally within seconds, and Kathy corrected the story for me because I forgot a few of the details. Um, here comes a police officer. So it's the first time the blue lights created joy in me. Amen. <laughs> Usually blue lights don't create joy. It's like, uh-oh, <laughs> what was I going? And sure enough, man, within, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating, within seconds, he pulls over, picks us up, we go to the next exit, we get gas, come back, and there's another police car that's, you know, got the traffic all blocked off and making them go around us, and, and we get gas in our car, and thank God we, we get home. I share that story um, because every time I think of that story, guys, and, and I mean this, um, it just brings joy, and it makes me smile Every time I think of that story, not only just the, just all that kind of went on in that moment, and Kathy and I laugh about it a lot, but primarily just the way um, God did kind of rescue us in a very powerful way then, because we were really fearful of our lives. And that's the key, isn't it? So, so if, if, the, if the message of Christmas that we're to rejoice in is that a Savior's been born for you, then for us to really rejoice in that and receive that, then we've got to become what I would say, we've got to become like, like shepherds. Like we have to, to kind of become like a shepherd. I mean, it, it's not just coincidental that God's announcement of the birth of his son went to shepherds first. I mean, we, may, we can think that. I mean, they're close by. You know, Jesus is born a little manger or you know cave that's close by to these shepherds so maybe that's the reason why God shows up no there's an intentionality there's a there's a there's a there's a meaning behind him showing up to these shepherds and and making this announcement to them first and foremost and sometimes when we think of the shepherds guys I don't know what you think about but I don't normally think about the way people thought about shepherds in this time I think about Charlie Brown you know Linus you know the little play they're really cute and nice or I think about you know I I I was a shepherd in a play. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, how many of you guys played a shepherd? You know what I'm saying? Like, it, 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 you have images of, like, nostalgia and, and good feelings. But in this time, shepherds were not like that. They were a marginalized group of people. They were outcasts. They were not educated. Um, they were never allowed to testify in the court of law because they were liars they were very suspicious. They were never allowed in the temple because they were unclean. And so, and the shepherds knew this. You're saying that they knew they were unclean. They knew they weren't allowed to kind of be in the court of law because of their reputation. They knew that they were 
socially kind of marginalized. They, they, they knew this and they felt this. That's why, guys, look, sometimes we forget this. That's why they weren't offended by the message. When Jesus, when God, when the angel shows up and says, hey, I got good news, man, of a great joy. And what is that good news of a great joy? In the city of David, a Savior has been born for you. Nobody's going, oh, I'm offended by that. Oh, my gosh. How can he say a Savior is born for me? Doesn't he know, like, how good I am? No, they weren't offended by that. I mean, as soon as the angels left, what did they do? They immediately went to go see what the angel told them about. They went there, and they're astonished and amazed. And as they're leaving, they're singing songs. They're praising God. I don't, I don't know what they're singing. Maybe they're, go tell it on. Right? I don't, obviously not that. But, but there's a joy in them. Why? They're not offended by that message because they felt it. They knew how desperate they were. They knew the position that they were in. They knew their need for a Savior. And so when they hear a Savior has been born for you, there's a rejoicing that comes out of their mouths. And so for, so for us, guys, look, and I want this in my own life, for us to have this power and this presence for us to rejoice in this message of Christmas, we have to become shepherds. And this is what I mean by this. And sometimes you're like, well, what does that mean? I got to quit my job and go, you know, watch some sheep? Or, you know, what are you talking about? Well, Isaiah 57, 15 gives us a commentary on what I mean by that. Look what he says here. For the high... An exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this. And obviously he's talking about God the Father, Yahweh here. Where does he live? I live in a high and holy place. And, that's that's a biggie. That and needs to be like bold and underlined. With the oppressed, or some translations have contrite and lowly of spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. If we're... If we're kind of reading this um, as we think we probably should read it, it should read like this. God lives with the high and holy and those who are also high and holy. God's power and presence is on those who live in a high exalted state and also who are holy. That's not, that's what we think. Like, if we're kind of being honest with what's in us, right? Re, you know, a reactive response. That's what we think. This is where God lives. So then he also lives with people that are high and holy. But that's not what the text says. There are two places where God's power and presence dwells. High and holy is one place, the exalted place, the highest heaven. And in the heart of humbled people. That's what I mean by we've got to become like shepherds. He lives in the high and holy place and he lives with those with lowly spirit. He lives in the highest of heavens and with those who are contrite and humble. We must never forget that this is where Christianity began and always begins and how it continues in our life with a sense of need. An awareness, a real awareness of our insufficiency. Christ himself comes to the needy. He is born only in those who are poor in spirit. So why is that? 
Why is that true? Well, that's how salvation was achieved, wasn't it? God humbled himself and became a man. In fact, sometimes we, we miss a step. He became a baby. The high and exalted one became a baby. God had to be changed. God had to be fed. God, at one time, all he could do was wiggle. There was a time when God couldn't walk. That's, that's humbling. It's a very vulnerable place. And not only do you see it in his birth, we also see it in his life. God was humbled in his life. He was the son of a carpenter. Grew up in one of the poorest families in this time. Grew up in a town called Nazareth, which would be like Lebanon Junction, right? Which is where I grew up. Nothing there. Nothing good comes out of Lebanon Junction. <laughs> Didn't have a place to lay his head. And his death was humiliating. He hung on a cross naked for you. So why is it that only Jesus can dwell on those who are humble? It's because this is how salvation was achieved. He humbled himself. And it's also the only way that salvation is received. So look, my, my heart for me and my heart for you is that all of us in this room will rejoice in the message of Christmas and that is that Jesus Christ was born for you. And so for me to rejoice in that message, I've got to receive that with humility. And so that means if I'm not a Christian here, here's where it starts. I humble myself before God and I admit that I am a sinner in need of the grace of God in my life in need of a Savior and His name is Jesus. I think it's um, Tim Keller. I'm sorry to keep referencing him. I obviously read him too much and he has stopped so reading somebody else. <laughs> um, he talks about like there's two ways that we try to save ourselves immorality and morality so we try to be our own saviors through immorality just doing our own thing and being our own king and that usually leaves us wanting and we make a mess of our lives but we also can do be our own saviors through our own morality to where we try to be good and so it's a way to kind of control so justify ourselves and kind of control our life by being good i would add a third one i think our culture within where we live is indifference and i think indifference comes by hearing it so much and that's the danger for where we live here in louisville that we hear it so often that some of us in this room become indifferent to it and think that just because i show up or i've heard it then i've humbled myself and admitted that i'm a sinner 
And all three of those are really dangerous and never get you into a position where you rejoice in the message of Christmas. So if if you're not a Christian here, man, my invitation for you is that I want the power and the presence of God to come into your life, so humble yourself and admit you're a sinner in need of salvation. If you're a Christian here, then, then the same is true. Like, I want more of his presence in my life. I, I want to continue to rejoice in this message that a, that a Savior has been born for you, Lyle. And I want more and more of the presence and the power of God in my life. And so if I want that, then, guys, this is what's hard to hear, but it's so true. We have got to continue to be open, hands like this, um, to go through humbling experiences. Because humbling myself doesn't end when I receive Christ. And that moment, whenever that is, whenever it's young or older or whatever, it doesn't end there like humbling continues on, right? So if I want to grow, if I want to, the big word that we use is sanctify, to go through the sanctification process of becoming more and more who I'm supposed to be in Christ, then the common experience that we're going to have together is God's going to continue to humble you. I know there's not a lot of amens on that one, right? (laughs) Because being humbled is, well, it's humiliating. But it's what we see all throughout the Bible. When did Elijah hear um, the still small voice of God? When he, was it when he was on the mountain kicking some tail, you know, with the Baal prophets? God sent down fire. You know, was that when he heard the still small voice of God? No, it wasn't. It was when he was so depressed in such a dark place that he wanted God to, to take his life. And it was in that desperate place that God spoke to him. And that he experienced more of God's power and presence in his life. Because look, anytime you get to a place in depression where you're wanting to take your own life, that's, that's not only really, really hard, it, it, it can be humiliating. When did Peter experienced the grace of God in his life in a powerful way. When did that happen? It happened after the humbling experience of denying him three times. When he looked him in the face and said, I'll never do that. I'm amazing. (laughs) But in John chapter 21, there's Jesus fixing breakfast. (laughs) And he asked Peter to come and eat with him. And in that moment, I think Peter experienced something that he had never experienced with Jesus. And how did he get there? Humbling experience. And so that's got to be our posture. I don't know what it is for you. But I want God's power and presence to be more and more in my life. I want to I grow in my rejoicing that he sent a Savior for me. I want that for you. And God will graciously take you through humbling experiences because that's when 
we can experience and know that in a real way. It's not what we pray for. It doesn't mean we have to go seek this out. It, it'll come. It'll come. So as I close, I just have a couple prayers, I think. May God help us to rejoice in the message of Christmas. A Savior was born for you. And may God continue to humble us so that we can rejoice more and more in this message. Let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.